You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our friends at Movement Watches and Mac Weldon for the continued support of SpyCast. Movement Watches, join the movement today. And Mac Weldon, reinventing men's basics. We're joined today by the journalist Steve Toomey, who began his career in journalism as a copy boy at the Chicago Tribune when he was in high school. After graduating from Northwestern University, he began a 14-year career at the Philadelphia Inquirer, during which he won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing and then worked at the Washington Post here in Washington, D.C. for the next 13 years. More recently, he's written for Smithsonian and other magazines and has taught narrative writing at the graduate schools of NYU and the City University of New York. He's the author of a new book, Just in Time, for the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. It is called Countdown to Pearl Harbor, the 12 Days to the Attack. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is a treat. So I, I, I looked at Pearl Harbor a bit when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to write for my dissertation. And... Uh, I eventually write up, wrote about nuclear intelligence, but Pearl Harbor really kind of fit into that, these ideas, strategic surprise. And I'm not trying to talk about how many books I've read about Pearl Harbor, because I have. I'm really trying to lead a segue to there are tons and tons and tons of books written about Pearl Harbor. It's appropriate to have a book come out at the 70th anniversary of the attack. But what makes your book unique? Why do we need a new book? Why should the listeners say, all right, I want to read this book. So I think they should. I loved it. But I, th- I want to hear you kind of lay out for them why this is new and interesting. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, we all have a general basic knowledge of what happened on that day. You mentioned the words Pearl Harbor, and people know it's a disaster. It was a, a treacherous act. Uh, we certainly know who did it. I'm not giving away anything in the book. <laughs> Um, when I say that the Japanese were responsible, we may also have heard vague rumors that Franklin Roosevelt uh, knew in advance the Japanese were coming. And let me just say, as an aside, on the 75th anniversary, I think we really ought to bury that idea, yeah. uh, uh, that conspiratorial fantasy that he knew. There's absolutely no evidence. Hopefully there are no Pearl Harbor truthers in our audience. Uh, I but if you so. are, <laughs> you want to turn it off now because we're not going to go there. Exactly. Um, but I didn't feel that people really understood what in, an incredible story it was before the actual attack. Um, and there was a, a kind of a neat bookend uh, that uh, would begin the book, and that's November 26th, 1941, which is the day the Japanese fleet started sailing toward uh, per, uh, Pearl Harbor. And in those ensuing 12 days, 
information was coming in almost every day, and the Americans were making judgments about what it meant, sending messages uh, right here in Washington on Massachusetts Avenue. We could see that uh, the Japanese were burning things in their backyard. And I thought those 12 days uh, and the people who populate them would make for a great nonfiction thriller mm-hmm. where, yes, you know how the story is going to end, but you don't know the players and you don't know their decisions and you don't know their mistakes and you don't know their pain when they realize they were extraordinarily wrong about what was uh, uh, or what could happen. So I, I thought, uh, you're, you're absolutely right, there are a lot of books out there, and I almost quit several times in the last few years because I thought I can't, uh, I can't add to this. But I think in the end, uh, this comes out uh, as um, something that you know, but you really don't. Mm-hmm. And in the, uh, if you read it, you'll, you'll learn a lot that you thought uh, or that you didn't know. So it's very difficult to kind of have this conversation in a linear fashion. We're not talking about a, a chronological history. There's a lot of bouncing around, whether it's from Pearl to Washington to Japan, but also different personalities interacting with each other, but also doing important things at the same time as others are. So let, let's kind of take these thematically sure. instead of working through these 12 days. I want to start with uh, the reason to put the fleet at Pearl Harbor in the first place, because that, they were actually new to Pearl Harbor. They had been, the Pacific fleet had been at San Diego for decades yeah, at this I think, point. Uh, sir, I don't know when it was first put there, but it had been there a long time on the West Coast, San Diego and also Long Beach. Um, in uh, 1940, in April of 1940, the fleet, as it often did, uh, sailed off uh, away from the West Coast to Hawaiian wa- waters to conduct its normal annual exercises. And instead of being allowed to return to the West Coast, Franklin Roosevelt decided and told them to stay there. Uh, Pearl Harbor at that time had uh, was a Navy base. It had been in American possession since 1898, Hawaii had. And one of the reasons we had acquired it was because Pearl Harbor seemed to be such a great mm-hmm. place for um, a Navy. Um, and But it had never been permanently based there. And Roosevelt uh, made the decision to put them there. Uh, as kind of a holstered threat to the Japanese. Right, as a deterrent, right? As yeah, a deterrent. Yeah. They, they won't attack us if this is here. Japan was uh, behaving much as Germany was um, in 1940, uh, kind of uh, aggressively marching through uh, certainly China and making noises about expanding its empire. And we were trying to curb that. We were trying to dissuade them from attacking other countries. And uh, particularly with um, the fall of France... Uh, it became apparent, uh, oddly enough, that all European possessions in the Pacific, those of the Dutch, those of the French in Indochina, those of the British in uh, Singapore and Malaya, were now very tempting targets for the Japanese because these countries were preoccupied yeah, the least, with, right? with saving yeah. themselves yeah. from the Germans. So there's a definite connection there. Uh, and the result was uh, Roosevelt wanted this very um, visible force uh, probably the largest at the time single uh, American um, weapon, if you will. He wanted them at Pearl Harbor to, to scare the Japanese. Well, and it's an extraordinary fleet. I mean, we're talking aircraft carriers and battleships and yep. this massive amount of, of naval power with no real belief that it could be a target, could be attacked. I mean, Pearl itself is kind of a natural barrier to old-fashioned naval attack. 
When it was uh, first recognized that it was a desirable harbor, it seemed perfect. Um, to give a brief description uh, of what it looks like, because that's the key, it has a very narrow channel coming in from the sea and then sort of opens up into a large area that's almost like the petals of a clover. And it meant that you could easily guard the entrance and nobody offshore could fire away and, yeah. and hit you. Uh, and if they tried to come down the channel, they were sitting ducks. But this was all before the airplane. And by 1940 and 41, the airplane had come along. And uh, there was a recognition that uh, keeping ships in Pearl Harbor would be uh, not a good idea if uh, you knew an enemy was approaching uh, with a large number of airplanes. Well, you talked about the fact that the, the, the Japanese are beginning to act a little bit like the Germans. And I, I want to look at, perhaps that's certainly true the way they're acting, but certainly we didn't perceive them in the same way we perceived the Germans, particularly no. considering you know the Germans were this war machine. They, they you know, had the great armor and great pilots and great aircraft. The belief about the Japanese from the American perspective uh, you know, I, you only use this word historically. That they were the Japs, and they, there's a lot that came along with being the Japs. Um, and massive amounts of racism here in the way we perceive Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm, I'll jump forward in that story and, and tell you something extraordinary. On the day or shortly after the uh, attack, there was a rumor floating around Congress that the Germans had helped plan the attack on Pearl Harbor and may have even been flying some of the planes which is an incredible indication of how little we thought right. of the Japanese, that they couldn't have pulled this off without the help of the Aryan masters. We thought of the Japanese as sort of um, uncreative. Someone once wrote, you know, where is the Japanese Michelangelo? Where is the Japanese Shakespeare? That we didn't think they were creative. Uh, we didn't think they could build good weapons, that their production lines were terrible. And most, off, uh, most seriously, we thought of their pilots and their aviation ability as second rate and sometimes actually attributed that to physical characteristics. Well, the Fletcher Pratt stuff is something that, you know, it's, it's impossible to scary. ignore. It's, it, it, can you talk a little bit about that so I'm not the one doing it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's such a great story. It's ridiculous. Uh, There's a very famous author at that time named Fletcher Pratt, uh, wrote history books, and I think he wrote fiction too. And in 1939, he said in a book that, um, by virtue of uh, defects of their inner ear and by virtue of having or being myopic, they were not good aviators at all. And that was a, a common belief. Uh, there's an American naval officer named Arthur McCollum who actually had been born in Japan, and he had great respect for the Japanese. And he said it just drove him crazy to hear these rumors. Uh, he, and the favorite one he told was, well, they have bad senses of balance because as babies, they're carried on the backs of their big sisters and they bounce around their little neighborhoods in Tokyo and it throws their inner ear off. And this leads them in later in life to be lousy pilots. Yeah, I mean, the idea that there were more risks to themselves when they were flying. Yeah, that's, uh, there's an admiral who, um, uh, one of uh, the uh, subordinates of the fleet commander, who said he was sure the uh, Japanese were not good pilots, and his source was an official of the Singer Sewing Machine Company who had worked in China as a representative of the company, uh, excuse me, worked in Japan, and um, had always counseled his employees never to take Japanese civil aviation because 
you'd never get from point A to point B alive. Um, and to the Admiral, that was good stuff. Right. That was good information. <laughs> well, one thing also was interesting was that this idea that the Japanese possessed no sense of logic, that it was all emotional, that it was not thinking in a more logical manner. So that, that's, to me, interesting down the road, which we'll talk about too. But this idea, they just don't think logically the same way we do. Yeah, we had kind of a, a, a strange split Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, assessment of how they reasoned. On the one hand, we consider them really odd and strange, um, and they, they are people who thought with their whole beings and they didn't think like us. But on the other hand, we attributed to them immense logic in one particular area, and that was, well, they'll know that we're much stronger than right. we are and that they can't possibly beat us in war, and therefore they won't attack us. Yeah, so That is the, the most ridiculous thing. It's this <laughs> idea of there's, in the intelligence world, and the listeners know this as you do, mirror imaging going on here, right? That's it's like, exactly what They have means. to see it the same way we do. They, they, they have to understand that this is the most fearful force ever put together on, on, on sea. So logically... They won't attack us. And then That's at the right. same time going, they have no logic. Exactly. And uh, what uh, I do, I think we need to acknowledge that they were right when they said they could never beat us. Right. That was true. They couldn't in the long run. Um, but that didn't mean they wouldn't try anyway, right. which is what we concluded wrongly. Well, it's, we are also thinking their aircraft, their garbage, which you've already mentioned, their technology wasn't very good. But what was funny from an intelligence perspective was... There was a lot of secrecy about how good the Japanese aircraft were. That's why we didn't know a whole lot about them. But the conclusion about why there was secrecy was the opposite of what you would assume. Yes, I can't remember exactly which uh, publication. I think it may have been a magazine called The Aeroplane. They said um, it was, uh, we know so little about Japanese weaponry because they're ashamed of it. They know it's uh, lousy. And they don't want to bring it out in public because they would be publicly embarrassed when it broke down and didn't perform well, which, uh, again, is uh, so often through this story, we put a positive spin on, right. on information um, because it helps us continue to do the thing we already were hoping to do. Uh, so it made it easier to sort of dismiss the Japanese as a threat. If if their airplanes are going to crash, um, you know, how much of a worry do we have? I mean, one of the one of the serious implications of this mirror imaging that we were talking about was the idea that we just didn't have the imagination to think of what could potentially be used, like the torpedoes. Right? We'll talk a little bit about the fact that the torpedoes were dismissed as a potential weapon at Pearl Harbor because how shallow it was. I think that's a story a lot of people know just from history. But we kept thinking they couldn't make it work because we couldn't figure out how to make it work. And again, that defies logic, for lack of a better word, because we're assuming that they don't think the way that we do, but we're treating yes. them as though we, they think the yes. way that we do. And that when confronted with a problem, in this case the depth of Pearl Harbor, they would simply accept that that was a problem and not sit down and try to solve the problem. Uh, our torpedoes uh, would drop deeper than 70, uh, 45 feet, which was the depth of Pearl Harbor. And so we assumed that their torpedoes would uh, drop too deep as well. And it just doesn't seem to have occurred to anyone that they might sit back and try to solve that problem, which they did. Yeah, and which is, again, American ingenuity would be normally the people that figure this out. But the assumption is the Japanese right. just won't have the same kind of creativity as we would. 
What's interesting to me, uh, and we'll talk about this more later on, was there were people like McCallum and Joe Rochefort and others who actually understood the Japanese weren't like this, but the upper leadership of America and uh, military leadership didn't. That's not the case on the Japanese side. And Yamamoto is a name that a lot of people know for good reason. He knew the American people very, very well. Can you give us a little bit of his bio and his background? Yes. Because this is somebody that understood us. Um, uh, let me just say to begin with, if, if I had a chance to have dinner with any of the characters at Pearl Harbor, he's the person I would pick. Uh, he was a fascinating man, um, very small, even by Japanese standards at that time, had been uh, wounded during the war with the Russians in 1904, 1905. He'd lost a couple of fingers. Very romantic, sentimental guy, um, very smart, and he was a gambler, and I mean that in a literal sense. He loved to gamble. Uh, he'd play any game of competition with you. Uh, he often said that if he had another life, he would have lived it in Monaco at the gambling tables. He had also uh, been based in the United States twice uh, as a military attache, and he had traveled all over the country. Um, he had even gone to uh, an Iowa Northwestern football game. He loved Abraham Lincoln, uh, and he knew how great the industrial power of the country was. Uh, he knew that the United States had more factories and more steel and more oil and more wheat and all those things that were uh, scarce in Japan and that there was just no way in a long war that Japan could replace its losses the way the United right. States could. Um, and so he was a deep skeptic about the idea of going to war with the United States, but he didn't run the country. That decision was not his to make. He argued, as Japan was building its forces to go down and attack those European colonies I mentioned, that we have to try to take out the Pacific Fleet. He wouldn't have done a war, but this was being given to him. He said, if we attack them and surprise them before a war starts, we might crush their morale so much um, that their will to fight would be uh, destroyed. And that's the one mistake he made, of right. course, that he completely misread how the United States would react as a people to what he was about to inflict on them. Well, and he's writing Read the United States in the 1930s during the Great Depression, which probably not the same people we're dealing with when a war kicks off. I, yeah. I mean, trying to second-guess the reason he believed the way that he did. Um, there's a lot of urban legend about the whole sleeping giant dragon, you know, whatever it is. That's obviously third or fourth hand afterwards. But it's pretty clear that when they don't hit the carriers, and I'm not giving away the ending here, <laughs> when they don't give the carriers, Yamamoto knew from the very beginning that basically they had failed. Even though there was a lot of fanfare back in Japan and we were licking our wounds, he's the one person that probably understood that Pearl Harbor did not succeed. Um, it was an enormous disappointment um, that the uh, three American aircraft carriers of the Pacific Fleet were not in the harbor. Um, they actually were, along with the battleships, the prime targets. Um, Yamamoto was very committed to naval air power, um, and he was not uh, a Luddite who still believed mm -hmm. in the battleship. He understood that this was the weapon of the future uh, because you could deliver so much destruction from such a great distance. 
Um, and so um, maybe I'm getting ahead of, of our story, but remember, this is the age before satellites. So right. They had no way of knowing when they left Japan whether the aircraft carriers uh, or even the Pacific Fleet itself was going to be there. And it wasn't until the morning of the 7th when, um, uh, well, actually, it may have been the day before when they got the last message from the spy they had working in Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. that they learned that the carrier, there were no carriers there. And, right. and that was pure luck. One was on the West Coast and two were at sea. And um, it was uh, not a plan. There was no sense that danger yeah. was coming, that they needed to flee the harbor. And so um, uh, to the attack planner, his primary attack planner, a man named Genda, uh, this, this hurt. Uh, and they knew that uh, the absence of the carriers was going to be uh, a serious problem, as it proved to be six months later at, Midway at the Battle Coral of Midway. Sea and yeah. Midway. I, the battleship part is interesting because you write in the book that they're really not strategically important anymore. They, they really viewed them as you attack the battleships because the American people think that they're important. Yeah, it, one of the uh, most poignant um, aspects of this, I think, was uh, a week before Pearl Harbor was the Army-Navy game in Philadelphia, which was a huge thing then. I don't think it's quite that big now. Uh, it was November 29th, I think, and um, the program for that game was this massive 212-page program, and in that program is a photograph of these magnificent battleships led by the Arizona plowing through the open sea, waves splashing over the bow. And I think the caption was something like, despite the uh, claims of aviation enthusiasts, battleships still rule the seas. Well, uh, a week later, the Arizona right. is at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. And it's still there. And it's still yeah. there. Let me, we talked about the fact that a week before the attack, or more than a week before the attack, 12 days, is when the Japanese fleet sets sail. And today that seems ridiculous, right? I mean, the minute you, if the, the Chinese or the North Koreans or whomever <laughs> put that many ships at sea heading in our direction, we would spot it within 20 minutes, yep. let alone 12 days. Absolutely. But again, we don't have spy satellites or even aircraft that can, can look at this stuff at the time. But the plan depended entirely on surprise. How are the Japanese able to maintain you know, their counterintelligence during this. I mean, if any of those 12 days they had been spotted, they would have had real issues. And you write in the book that just about everybody assumed they were going to be spotted. Really, the, most, the people that were perhaps as surprised that they showed up at Pearl Harbor be, without being spotted, That's other true. than the Americans at Pearl Harbor were the Japanese, saying, how did we get here without being spotted? Yamamoto's plan was severely uh, opposed and criticized for that reason. It just didn't seem possible that you could go 3,150 miles over 12 days and not be spotted by a commercial ship, a warship, an airplane. Um, and the greater danger was actually that you would be spotted and not know you had been spotted. And that would enable the opponent to prepare his own ambush uh, and they would be sailing to their own destruction. Like what happens at Midway. Yes, yeah, no. exactly. Um, they went to such lengths to ensure the secrecy of this fleet, not just from the Americans, but from the Japanese people, uh, that um, almost none of the men aboard the 30 ships knew 
not only were, didn't, they didn't know where they were going, and they didn't even know who the enemy was going to be until they all arrived uh, at this extremely remote bay at the northern end of the Japanese islands, a very bleak and cold and snowy place with very few people. Um, and they were told there uh, where they were going. They all thought, well, that's it. We'll never see Japan again. Um, at that point, they were instituting uh, very basic security measures. Uh, the, the folklore is that keys on um, radio uh, coding machines were being taped off so that no one could accidentally hit a key that would send a signal and the mm. Americans would pick it up right. and think, that's strange, there are no, normally no ships in that area. Uh, garbage was not being thrown overboard uh, so that to prevent somebody on shore from picking up something that identified a ship as having been there. Um, and they arrived at this bay not as one fleet, but in two or three, in groups of two or three over days, to diminish um, the idea that something spectacular right. was happening. Um, so the, the Japanese, um, and then once they set sail, they said nothing. Over the years, there's been a lot about people arguing they picked up a signal from the fleet. To the best of my knowledge, they never said anything. They were receiving signals. Uh, particularly reports from the spy on uh, Oahu. But they were communicating with each other only by signal flag right. um, or uh, blinker lights. And, um, but they were so concerned about discovery that the commander of the fleet himself, it wasn't Yamamoto, he stayed behind, but the admiral in charge was certain that even the blinker light communications from one ship to another were going to be spotted right. in the night by some American ship in the game would be up and they'd be all all would be killed well compounding things is the fact that the united states had absolutely no intelligence assets in japan no zero i mean there's no humans uh even anyone who was in there as a diplomat or anybody else had no freedom of access to nope. talk to japanese and what 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 was the penalty if you're i mean you talk about heavy-handed penalties <laughs> in some cases i mean i think it was what you were killed you would be executed if mm -hmm. uh, uh you were caught talking uh, well, perhaps not caught talking, but if you, if it was revealed that you were providing the Americans with intelligence, the American ambassador in Tokyo, who uh, had been there ten years, his name is Joseph Grew, really uh, knew the Japanese, and he had many Japanese friends. And as 1941 went on, he said that they were just drying up; they wouldn't talk to him. They didn't want to be seen with him. He couldn't go play golf with them. Yeah. Uh, because uh, they didn't want to have anyone uh, think that they were providing information to him. So it was very, very hard to uh, move around uh, the main islands of Japan. Um, and uh, General Admiral Stark, the commander, uh, the, the chief of naval operations, uh, once said that um, American intelligence went no farther than the three-mile limit around Japan. Yeah. We knew things outside that, but inside those three miles, we knew very little. Before we move on to the American side of the leadership here, uh, let me take a minute and a half or so to tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches, spelled MVMT, but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 500,000 watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest growing watch company. Now, at this point, you might have already checked out their website, 
or even joined the movement and bought yourself an awesome new watch. But of course, it's that time again. The time when you can't watch TV for five minutes without being constantly reminded the holiday shopping season is here. Holiday shopping can be horrible, but thanks to movement watches, all that gift giving anxiety can disappear with the press of a button. These watches make the perfect purchase for just about anyone in your life, guy or girl. And remember, they start at only $95. So let's finish your holiday shopping and get a movement watch for someone on your list. With movement, you can skip the crowds and standing in crazy lines at the mall and find a gift they'll love at prices that beat the department stores. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And remember, over 500,000 watches sold in over 160 countries. So you get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. The watch I have has a really clean design. It's beautiful but not gaudy, and it's a true eye-catcher. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast and join the movement today. All right, now we're back. Let's talk about husband Kimmel. Let's talk about the guy who has been the kind of the whipping boy for Pearl Harbor over the last 75 years. I think I've never had a lot of respect for Kimmel, but I think your book has brought me around a little bit to seeing him as more complicated than I've always kind of seen very black and white and more on the black side. But I think there, there's more to Kimmel, perhaps, than I, I expected mm-hmm. there to be. Mm-hmm. Let me talk a little bit about him, his background. He seems to have maybe the, be, be the wrong person for this job to defend the Pacific Fleet. He might have been the perfect admiral once the attack had happened to go out and do some damage afterwards. He's really this hard-charging offensive mindset. That's exactly right. Um, he, he uh, in his messages all through 1941, uh, back to Washington, he would come back to this issue of offense again and again and again about having enough ships, about having enough planes, um, and uh, he wanted to be ready as soon as war broke out to go after the Japanese, which is a very admirable quality. Uh, that's what that's what. Uh, a president would want and a commander, as we all may remember, uh, Abraham Lincoln grew enormously exasperated with uh, General George McClellan uh, because he wouldn't go after uh, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, and he accused McClellan of having the slows. Um, the, uh, but no one would ever accuse Kimmel of doing that. And I think um, where, he, where he had difficulty was um, as warning signs were coming in uh, that were telling him that maybe he wouldn't be doing the attacking, uh, in essence, I think he had a hard time adjusting to the to being defensive. He, right. That to him wasn't what you did. These beautiful ships were for going after the enemy, not sitting around and waiting for him. Well, and, and it, it seemed almost like these warnings were an annoyance to him. Like he. He didn't want to have to take the time to prepare for defense because it would take away from his preparations for offense. Because he was, you can't argue that he didn't train his men. He kind no. of just sat there and played golf. I mean, he trained them and trained them and trained Relentlessly. them. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if I may jump ahead a, a little bit, one of the things that we have to admire about him is that on December 7th, uh, his men on those ships, even though they were completely shocked and it was Sunday they responded very quickly uh, to what was happening, and uh, 
the captain of one ship had, had noted that if he had had to single out any member of his crew for heroism, he'd have to name everybody on board. So, yes, Kimmel did a good thing in that sense. Well, you, you, I mean, I, you, you did skip it. I wanted to bring this up. This Sorry. Is great. No, no, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. I mean, you're looking at things where Pearl Harbor resulted in 15 Medal of Honors in 60 Naval, Navy crosses just for those, what, 30 minutes of combat. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that these guys didn't sit there and deer in headlights while they were being attacked. Their training kicked in instantaneously. And, like, the Nevada is the great example. I mean, this is a ship that almost fought its way out of Pearl Harbor. And uh, it's extraordinary. I don't know why they haven't made, I mean, I know a they, movie, yeah. about this kind of specific thing. They, they kind of, well didn't do a great job perhaps with the last one but oh, you're referring to ben affleck no we won't yeah. uh, we won't tout that movie no they actually i uh, have to confess <clears throat> uh, when i read details of what happened with the nevada that actually moved me to tears mm. um because it the sight of it in your mind is is so uh brave and just briefly for the audience the nevada was the last of the battleships in the row that was sitting there uh, along Ford Island that morning, and it had taken hits, um, and yet nonetheless it managed to get underway. And it was moving down the harbor, uh, and it was on fire. It, the Japanese recognized immediately that if they could sink it as it was moving, there was a good chance they would block the channel. Or they could put it right in that narrow inlet that you exactly. described in the very beginning. And they would bottle up the whole harbor, and the fleet wouldn't be able to get out. And uh, people on shore, on their own ships, uh, which were being attacked and were burning and in a couple of cases starting to turn over, they watched the Nevada going by with all of its guns firing and um, uh, being hit again and again and smoke billowing. And this one man recalled the flag flying off the stern of the ship, waving. He thought it was the most gallant thing he'd ever seen. Um, unfortunately, they realized they weren't going to make it to the open sea. Yeah. Um, they were hit and hurt too badly. Um, and so they beached themselves near the entrance to, um, uh, or to the exit, near the exit to the harbor. But I, I want to give you a footnote to that story of the Nevada. The Nevada was uh, repaired. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, most of the ships that were hit that day were not forever lost to us. The Nevada was repaired. And amazingly enough, on June 6th, 1944, the Nevada was off the coast of Normandy providing uh, bombardment for the invading troops moving in uh, on Omaha Beach and Utah Beach. And I think that's one of the, of many perhaps, problems with the Pearl Harbor movie that we discussed is that they show one or two people shooting, you know, kind of silly Tommy guns up in the air. Or maybe <laughs> you've got one or two anti-air gunners. There were hundreds of thousands of pieces of lead flying up in the air. I mean, the fight back didn't do a hell of a lot of damage to the Japanese forces, but no one just kind of sat there and cried. I mean, everyone was doing everything yes. they could to try to fight back against the Japanese and, and, and attack, and that doesn't get enough. Uh, it does not. Because, the, again, this is waking up on a Sunday morning in peace, expecting nothing to happen, nothing. and all of a sudden World War II has begun. Uh, and not not running away, but fighting to, you know. Well, I think a, a, an indication of what you're saying is that uh, most of the damage was done in the first uh, few minutes of the attack. 
when the Japanese second wave arrived, uh, about 170 additional planes, the resistance was much fiercer and the damage was correspondingly less because they were now, they had lost the element of surprise and there was an enemy vigorously fighting back. Um, Still, I don't want to, we can't say that it was anything but a one-sided disaster, which is what Franklin Roosevelt said that night when he met with the cabinet, uh, that this was not a, a, a fair fight. And so Kimmel, we've talked about, has been completely uh, demonized for ignoring signs, for ignoring warnings. What I found interesting that kind of flies in the face of this is his normal personality wasn't that way. His normal personality was the demand that his subordinates actually push back against what he believed. Very much so. And he actually punished those that were kind of yes men. He did. How does that – it doesn't seem to jive, right? You have somebody who is wedded to these ideas – and demands from his people that they don't allow him to be too comfortable with any ideas. I mean, are we just kind of talking about lack of subordinates who are willing to step up and say, maybe we should do something about this? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, we're, I think a mindset had set in within his staff, and uh, uh, certainly he had this mindset, um, that uh, they really weren't... Um, at risk. You, you have to separate the question of were we going to war, that's one, from where, we, right. where the war was going to start. They absolutely knew that war was going to break out, but due to bad phrasing and, and language in the principal message they got, um, they had concluded that Washington expected the main Japanese strike was going to occur far, far, far away in the southwest Pacific which it did. The component that was missing was the Pearl Harbor component. Well, and you talk about a message, but there have been messages that have been going on for over a year at this point from you mentioned um, Harold Stark already as the chief of naval operations, had been sending out warnings to the Pacific since, I guess, the beginning of 1940, saying war's about to begin in a couple months or a couple weeks. And, of course, it didn't happen. And people like... uh, uh, Admiral Halsey, who's kind of famous for, for this time, uh, just kind of blew them off at this point. Basically, crying wolf of this warnings over and over yeah. and over again. That's true. Harold Stark had uh, a maddening tendency to uh, send out messages that were alarmist on one day and then don't worry about it the next day. And you never quite understood what Harold Stark was trying to say. Um, but he would send predictions that, oh, it's look, it looks bad, war could happen next week, uh, maybe next month. Uh, and, of course, it never happened. And Halsey said we used to call them wolf messages um, because they, they, nothing ever happened. Even with that, though, I, I think they did re- recognize uh, in the, as the end of November approached, they recognized on, uh, at Pearl that we, we were moving into something much more real, um, Probably the most difficult thing to understand in terms of the messages Kimmel got was when he was told on December 3rd that our intelligence services had uh, broken, been reading some Japanese cables, and we learned that the Japanese had received orders at their embassies in London, um, Washington, and their consulates in Manila and other places that 
Tokyo had told the um, its diplomats to start destroying their secret documents and to to destroy their code machines. And that's a pretty solid indication right. that the enemy is going to war. But Kimmel somehow managed to interpret that not as the Japanese were preparing to attack us, but that they were preparing to be attacked by us. Always the offensive mindset. Right. Yeah. And that therefore he didn't he didn't worry that much about it, although he subsequently said just a couple of weeks later, I was wrong. I, I was wrong about that. Well, but as you mentioned, specificity in these messages was an issue because a lot of people assumed, and Kimmel certainly did, if they weren't named, because other the Philippines were named, Southeast Asia was named, the Dutch East Indies or French Indochina as they yep. were named at the time. Yep. They were named in some of these messages, but Pearl Harbor wasn't. So I guess the assumption that Kimmel had, and he even mentions this, was that, you know, they name all these other places, but not us. Uh, I mean, this is counterfactual history, but the mistake seemed to be naming anybody. If he just yes. left it out there, war in the Pacific is about to begin. So they do say, consider this a war warning, which is very strong. But then they go on to say Philippines and other places, but not Pearl Harbor. Yes, if there's one of the messages of, of Pearl Harbor, it is, as you finish writing a message to someone, make sure that uh, there's no other possible way they could read what you've just written. You know, when we write a message, we know what we mean. Uh, we know the conclusion that you're supposed to draw, but you kind of have to put yourself in the seat of the other person. Um, and uh, Kimmel uh, believed that he had been, he, that Pearl Harbor had been, uh, was safe by omission. But the really dangerous thing uh, there is not what um, uh, whether Stark had enumerated enough places. It was that there was a tradition in the Navy that if you were given a message or given advice or given an order, you did not have to reply how you were executing that order. Right. Well, um, Stark was even more a believer in that. He really expected his subordinates to exactly react and the way we we're going. That's why they people loved him. Uh, he was not a good choice, even less of a good choice than Kimmel. Um, he was not a good choice to be the chief of naval operations. He was too hands off. He believed that I I've hired good men and they're in these positions because they've demonstrated judgment, and so I am not going to tell them how they should execute an order, and in fact. I don't even want to know how they have. Now, I think it's a good thing to give your subordinates creativity so they can come up with a good solution. I don't think it's a good thing to then remain ignorant of right. what they've chosen to do or not do. And so in Washington, there was, a, 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 certainly in the, in the uh, Navy Department, a belief that Kimmel was doing all the right things out there. He was conducting re reconnaissance. He was wary, even though they didn't think Hawaii was first on the target list. Um, and, in fact, uh, the chief of the Far East section of naval intelligence, the man I mentioned, Arthur McCollum, actually went to Stark and his subordinates and said, have you warned the fleet? And they said, oh, they've been warned. and they're, they're, they're ready. Well, that wasn't true. Well, they had been warned, but Stark had no knowledge of whether they were ready. Well, the assumption was that the fleet wasn't even just sitting in Pearl Harbor. They probably had gone out. Yes and we're looking around. Um, one thing I thought was interesting that kind of compounds this issue that is also maybe Stark's problem or maybe goes higher than that, was there was no single service designated for defending Pearl Harbor. It was half the Army, half the Navy. No one in charge. That's right. They weren't communicating very well. You have Short, General Short, who was the Army commander, Kimmel with the Navy. They were friends. They talked. They played golf. 
The problem is they assumed that the other person was doing things they weren't, and they just never checked with each other either. Um, and, and to me, when you, I, I never read this before, and maybe I just glossed over it before, but the alert <laughs> scales is my favorite example. That is astounding. Of this, where number one, like alert scale one, is the highest for the Navy. It means we're about we're at we're, war. We're ready to go to war. But it's the lowest for the Army. And it's the lowest for the Army. And, and they didn't know that. And they didn't know. That's to me, is just actually bonkers. Um the another great lesson of Pearl Harbor is that one person has to be in charge. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. The uh, neither of the services was subservient to the other. Neither could tell the other what to do. They certainly tried to coordinate. Um, but when you have that kind of a situation, there's always going to be things that you think the other guy is aware of or is taking care of uh, that he's not. Uh, and when Walter Short got his own warning about the imminence of war, um, it said uh, in the message something like, uh, consider reconnaissance uh, as you deem necessary. And Short read that and said, whoa, they've got that wrong in Washington. Air reconnaissance long distance is not my responsibility. We've worked that out with the Navy. Right. The Navy is supposed to send out the long-range search planes and so in Washington, they've made a mistake. Well, General Short, therefore, at that point, didn't do the obvious thing, which was check to see if the Navy was, in fact, doing what he thought they were. Which would have been picking up the phone and making a phone call, as simple as that. As right? simple as that. In fact, they saw each other uh, physically all the time. They played golf together frequently. Um, but I considered what Short did with that one of the more astounding things, that you could think the War Department had made a mistake and do nothing to enlighten them to their mistake. He didn't tell them, you, you've got this wrong, I don't right. do reconnaissance. Um, Short uh, was uh, not also probably the best choice. Uh, he was, uh, his expertise was machine guns, uh, and uh, he didn't have very much experience being on an island. Um, right. 2,000 miles out into the ocean uh, with the Navy going off and doing whatever it was doing. He didn't know much about that. Yeah, no, I, a little fun story. When I was a tanker in the Army, um, and we... Uh, Did not mean to denigrate no, the No, 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 Army Army's strong or whatever it is now. <laughs> uh, but when we were at the end of basic, when we were choosing where we wanted to go or, quote-unquote, where we would like to go, yeah. they don't ignore that. You could choose Schofield Barrack, Barracks in Hawaii. I'm like, are there tanks there? And they're like, there's two or something like that. To where, yeah. What do you drive around in circles on go? Oahu? I right? mean, Just... you can circumnavigate that island in about three hours. So, yeah. Um, yes. So yeah, not but the you know the the uh, the army should have been involved somewhat in the defense on Pearl Harbor. Oh, it but, had to be. Right, it had to be. So that. Putting one person in charge just seemed like a no-brainer, but it's it's one of these things that at Washington level they also failed to do. Well, uh, the the, mo the saddest aspect of the, that uh, discussion about divided responsibility is that there is a congressman named Melvin Moss who uh, was a Marine reservist, and he did his month of duty on Oahu in July. And because he was a congressman, he kind of got a VIP uh, tour of the place. After he got back, he wrote a letter to his friend Bill Halsey, which got to Harold Stark, that said, we can't have this divided command. Somebody has to be in charge. Otherwise, this is going to be disastrous. And he wrote this several months before Pearl Harbor, and he was exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, in, in minor and major details, if the two sides had been better coordinated, uh, there would have at least been a better defense um, that morning. Right. I want to move on and talk a little bit about the state of American intelligence uh, before Pearl Harbor. But first, let me take two minutes to tell you a little bit about Mac Weldon. If you've been listening to SpyCast lately, you've heard me talk about Mac Weldon, probably even more than you'd hope to. The truth is, and the reason I'm continuing to talk about them, no matter what store-bought brands you've been using in the past, Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. And we have the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, shorts, polos, and sweatpants that you'll ever own. As I've also mentioned before, the cool thing about this company is they are constantly growing. If you went online to check out Mac Weldon after hearing my first read a couple months ago and then never looked again, you'll be amazed about how much more they now have to offer. Like their Vesper Polo, the perfect product for SpyCast fans. The Vesper Polo has the design inspired by James Bond. It has advanced fabrics and a collar that will always keep its shape. This polo is unlike any other. Vesper Polo is even named after the company's favorite Bond girl from Casino Royale, Vesper Lynn. And as things are now filing to get a little bit cold, there's nothing better than the Mack Weldon Ace Hoodie and Pant made for life beyond the 9 to 5. The Ace Hoodie and Pant was designed with a refined fit, super soft French terry, and details that go the extra mile. They were made to be worn everywhere. And of course, Mack Weldon will always have the try-on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code SPYCAST and get 20% off today. All right, so let's talk about Intel. A lot of people may not understand, unless they're, they're wonks or they're, they, they've been studying this stuff for a while, that the American intelligence community has not always been as strong as it is today. The intelligence in the 1920s and 1930s essentially didn't exist in many respects. Certainly naval intelligence didn't have a lot going for it. There were ordnance experts who had been posted as naval attaches overseas. The Office of Naval Intelligence had a handful of people working for them. And there's no formalized training. One of the people that we'll talk about uh, that becomes very important, Joe Rochefort, was kind of just tossed into doing crypto inside Navy because they just needed somebody to do it. and no background, no training. And this really kind of causes some issues later on because you don't have this trusted ONI and G2, these people that today are looked to as experts by the leadership in Washington, the admirals, the generals, they didn't look at intelligence as being somebody that should be telling you what's going on. It certainly was not a valued um, career track uh, to go into naval intelligence. It was something, it was almost like a, a, uh, a sentence to community service yeah. uh, for two or three years, and then you went back to what everyone wanted to do, and that's get on a big ship. Uh, you rose in the ranks through command at sea. Uh, not at, <clears throat> excuse me, not at uh, a desk in Washington. Um, so there, there really wasn't a collection of respected uh, people um, who could um, sway or have influence over uh, the leading gen admirals in the, in the department. Now that said, I think it was growing in importance. Right. But even then, um, one of the uh, most famous admirals in the War Department, a gentleman by the name of Richmond Turner, who was described as the patent of the Navy, 
um, he was entirely dismissive of one of the key aspects of intelligence that uh, was uh, value, valued then, and that's traffic analysis, um, which we can explain yeah, or talk Let's to. Jump right in. Traffic analysis is really, really interesting. Actually, it's it's uh, something we still use today, but at the time, it was very important. Extremely important. In fact, in the age before satellites and, and better listening capability, it was, I think, the primary means by which we uh, figured out what the Japanese might be doing. But it's still very rudimentary. Essentially, you had, uh, in Hawaii's case, um, 30 or so guys sitting in a block concrete building on the, on the northeast side of uh, Oahu, and all they did all day long was wear headsets and listen to the Japanese Navy talking to itself. Um, they didn't pick up all the signals, um, but they picked up a lot. Now, we didn't know what they were saying because we hadn't broken those codes. Right. This isn't, this isn't code breaking. This no. is just listening to just garbled exactly. stuff. Yeah. It was being sent in what you might call Japanese Morse. They, they had their own uh, system of dots and dashes. And those intercepts uh, would be jotted down, and the people doing the jotting had no idea what was being said, and then physically driven uh, back over the mountains through Honolulu to the naval base, to the basement of a building, uh, and the basement had no windows. Everybody smoked. Uh, apparently the atmosphere in there was really <laughs> awful. And that was the Combat Intelligence Unit, which is where Joe Rochefort worked. That was his bailiwick. When you're trying to understand what uh, two ships are saying to each other or a ship is saying to shore, as I said, they couldn't read the actual contents. But imagine that an envelope has been put, in, uh, a letter has been put in an envelope and then sealed. You can't read the letter, but you know who sent it from the return address and to who it's going. Um, those are called radio call signs, and they need those to be able to route the messages mm -hmm. to the proper destinations from the correct senders. And over time, you can get good at figuring out who's important in the communication chain because they're the ones that are sending all the messages. Right. Um, and if they're sending to a bunch of ships at the same time, maybe those ships operate together, right. and they're getting the same orders. Um, they even could get good enough to figure out individual ships, that this must be the aircraft carrier um, Akagi. And um, the Japanese would change their radio call signs uh, every six months, pretty much religiously. And so Rochefort and his people, plus a comparable unit in Manila, would then have to learn all the new radio call right. signs. It was sort of a, an endless process called traffic analysis, but it actually, uh, for the day, was not bad. You could uh, learn a lot about what was happening. Uh, and one of the key signs that something big was happening was the Japanese had changed on schedule all their call signs on November 1st. Um, and then overnight, November 30 to de December 1st, the listeners in Manila and Hawaii realized that the Japanese had changed them again. Right, which a is month, of, yeah. A month too soon, uh, way out of the norm. And to Rochefort, that was a major indication that they were really concerned that, uh, about trying to mask what they were going to do because they knew we were listening because right. they were doing it to us. 
Well, the issue with traffic analysis is the limitation is that lack of messages or silence could mean a lot of different things. And, and in this case, there was silence. There was silence about these very important aircraft carriers that yes. all of a sudden had disappeared. Silence could mean something very benign or something very problematic. Um, silence is, is more aggravating and ambiguous than, than, um, than talking. Um, the Japanese uh, would often go silent, like any ship does, and it often does so because it's important. Uh, and when you're in port, you can connect to landlines mm -hmm. and uh, talk to your superiors that way. Um, so it wasn't unusual for the Japanese uh, to, uh, to lose track, rather. It wasn't unusual for the Americans to lose track of the movements of an individual group of ships. But in um, early December, uh, after that call sign change, um, the fleet intelligence officer, whose name was Edwin Layton, and he was a close friend and worked closely with Joe Rocheford, told Kimmel, you know, four of their carriers are off the radio waves. We, we don't know where they are, uh, haven't heard from them in a while. Um, and uh, Kimmel jokingly said to Layton, do you mean they could be coming around Diamond Head? Um, and Layton's response was, I think they're in port. They've done this before. They're just not part of this other huge operation that we are picking up. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, so many of their ships are involved in this move towards the Southwest Pacific that we think they don't have enough escorts left to be out there with those four carriers. And so the conclusion was they were in port. Uh, but he couldn't guarantee that. He repeatedly told Kimmel, um, I think this is where right. the situation, but he was saying, I can't guarantee that. Well, part of what compounded this, it seems, is that we did actually have a significant cryptologic success against the Japanese diplomatic codes. Of course, this is purple or magic. And, you know, this has been talked about and written about. It's a great, amazing cryptographic Indeed, indeed, that, that rivals or even exceeds what the British do against Enigma. But for our purposes, it is actually somewhat problematic in this case, because I think it made us overconfident. I think we can kind of point to the fact that a lot of people were saying that if something was going to happen, we would have seen it. I think people uh, looking back on Pearl Harbor are often confused about exactly the nature of what uh, of the codes we had broken. We had not solved their most significant naval codes, and wouldn't until later. Uh, but we had uh, solved uh, their diplomatic code, the one in which Tokyo passed instructions to its embassies abroad, at least in the major cities. And um, that was one of America's, if not America's, most closely held secrets, that we had done this. Members of Congress did not know it. Mm -hmm. It certainly had never been in the press for the obvious reason that once you start spreading the word of it, the enemy will hear it and change their codes. So only 10 people in Washington were authorized to get um, the translated results of these Japanese diplomatic cables, um, the highest civilians in the government and, and also the highest uh, military officers. Um, but Arthur McCollum, the man I mentioned before, the head of the Far East section, thought they were putting way too much credence in reading what the foreign ministry was saying to the, um, to the embassy in Washington. 
he kept trying to make the point that these are only their diplomats talking. Right. Um, this isn't the military talking. And memorably, one uh, officer replied to him, oh, Mac, we're reading the mail, as if we were sitting on their shoulders and, and following every move. Um, it, sh it should be said that we actually did have some military intelligence from a lower-level code about something that was going to happen or a curious interest in Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to get into that, but... Um, uh, the diplomatic breakthrough actually yielded no information of a coming military right. strike on uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, never did, and there'd be no reason for the foreign ministry to tell Washington that that was coming. But the overconfidence at the highest levels, I mean, the name magic is somewhat telling. Right? The idea is like, this, yeah. is, this is telling us everything we need to know, and people like McCollum and Rochefort and others were like, guys... But, of course, they're not going to listen to lieutenant commanders and commanders if they're admirals. They think they know better. Yeah, and I guess it's also just – I think it's a human reaction of, God, this is such a great thing we did. And these are the civilians in their government at the highest levels talking to each other. We must be, therefore, clued in yep. uh, to what's going on. And, of course, uh, Nomura had no idea about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, uh, because he was never told. He may have suspected something, but I don't think he was ever told. We talked about the fact that we had no real human intelligence assets in Japan. The reverse cannot not to be said to be true, uh, because there were human intelligence assets at Pearl Harbor in Oahu. Not that it was particularly difficult to do, um, even though two out of every five Hawaiians have had some kind of Japanese descent. Yes. Uh, they really didn't have the need to be parachuting James Bond into Pearl Harbor <laughs> to get information, you could kind of just sit and look and take tours, and everything was very open and overt. There was really no attempt at hiding what was going on inside Pearl Harbor. You couldn't really hide Pearl Harbor short of, of sealing off a huge chunk of, of Oahu. Um, as you mentioned, uh, an astounding number of residents of the, the islands were of Japanese descent. Uh, that is a, a migration that had started uh, for agricultural reasons. They had imported workers to pick pineapples and uh, uh, work uh, otherwise in the fields, the sugar cane. Um, and so uh, unlike having an American try to sneak into Japan and appear um, uh, not obvious, right. <laughs> it would be easy for someone, for a Japanese uh, military officer to blend in with the population on uh, Oahu, and that's what happened. Um, I think it was in March of 1941, a man uh, named Tadeo Yoshikawa uh, arrived on an ocean liner from uh, Japan, uh, and technically he was supposed to be some mid-level um, functionary at the Japanese consulate, but in fact he had been schooled in all things naval about uh, Pearl Harbor and the American Navy. And uh, he and a driver would frequently, uh, they had various locations that they would go out to um, to spy on Pearl Harbor. Uh, if for those not familiar with the harbor, the ground starts to rise up uh, along its shore fairly quickly. And you can get up, uh, even to this day, uh, you know, three, 400 feet fairly easily, just turn around and look. And Pearl Harbor is so immense 
um, that it sort of occupies your uh, entire view. And he w- knew enough about American ships to distinguish types. Mm-hmm. And he would count the number of ships. He would note that some were new, had just arrived in the harbor, or that the ones that were there yesterday were gone. Um, he even knew them, some, in some cases, by name. He didn't use binoculars. He was told never to take notes, don't take photos. He wanted to be able to pose as a tourist um, if he was ever stopped by the FBI. He never was. Um, Why? I mean, he's not doing any... There's no tradecraft here. He's just looking at stuff. it, it, It was something that both you and I could do and probably do really well. I mean, there's scuttlebutt about the fact that he took, you could take aerial tours of Oahu, basically, where a little, like, seaplane would fly you around. And he could just look down, basically, the exact view that the Japanese attack force would have, flying around for a couple bucks on a seaplane, no suspicion whatsoever, it's just come take a tour. He, um, I think he may have actually done that. Yeah. After the war, he considerably inflated his well, acts of daring do. Well, that's the thing. Is he uh, made it sound like there was a lot of trade craft, but it was no, simple. It was it, just looking it, at stuff. Um, yeah. He, um, I think most memorably, he reported that he had dived into the channel to see if there was a torpedo net strung across the entrance. Um, he was a self-promoter yeah. of, of the First Order. He was also a pretty heavy drinker. At the consulate... They didn't think a whole lot of Tadeo Yoshikawa because he slept late, he often was drunk. But he was uh, good enough to be regularly sending messages back to Tokyo on um, the arrivals and departures of ships. And in the uh, final days, of course, we didn't know they were the final days, nor did he. He didn't know that uh, Pearl Harbor was a target, although I think he suspected it. It seems like he guessed. He knew what was coming. Uh, He was reporting back to Tokyo daily on um, the numbers of ships, and Tokyo had asked him, I think on December 4th, maybe December 3rd, tell us if there are nets uh, around the battleship. And they meant torpedo nets, uh, which are kind of like underwater fences you string Mm -hmm. around a battleship catch and stop a torpedo. Um, So they wanted him to uh, report on that, which he did. And um, what's chilling is the last message he sent, which was on December 6th. He reported the ship count in the harbor. He also reported there was no barrage, there were no barrage balloons floating over the harbor, which you would do normally if you were trying to thwart torpedo planes. And I think it may have been the last sentence. I'm not sure if it was the last one or not. He said, quote, it appears uh, there is no aerial reconnaissance by the fleet air arm. Well, he was exactly correct. Right. There- well, and that's an interesting segue. I mean, that, that's where you get a lot of debate about Pearl Harbor, the idea of this back and forth about why wasn't there aerial reconnaissance. And so, I mean, this is cited as somewhat of a mitigating factor that, that, that Kimmel and others had a severe lack of these PBYs, these, these patrol aircraft um, that – there weren't enough to do 360-degree surveillance. And that was around. true. And that's absolutely true. The issue is, for them, there's really only one direction this attack is coming from. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of choices here for the Japanese. Uh, and it has a lot to do with things like the fact that if you come from the east, you're now put Hawaii between <laughs> yourself and retreat exactly. back to Japan. And also, the south and the west has a lot of little American islands that are dotted there. But most importantly, if anyone understands naval aviation, 
is you need to put yourself into the wind. That was the most uh, fascinating little technical detail I learned uh, about uh, the attack, I think, that not only was approaching the islands from the north reasonable because there are no islands from the north, there's not much commercial shipping. The fleet didn't practice in that direction very often. They practiced to the south of the islands. Um, And so if you were trying to arrive uh, undetected, coming from what one general called the vacant sea, uh, made a lot of sense. And then you add this technical thing, uh, and that has to do with how aircraft carriers work. If you were, uh, you always sail into the wind to launch and to recover your planes, so they have extra lift uh, Mm -hmm. as they're approaching your ship from the stern. And that's still true today. And that's still true today. Uh, Or uh, launching off the front. So if you were approaching from the south, um, launching your planes, I should back up, the winds in Hawaii, are they come uh, relentlessly, if you've been there, from the, uh, the northeast and the east the trade winds. Um, they blow constantly, and in fact, just as an aside, Honolulu gets pretty oppressive if they don't blow. Um, and the Japanese knew that. Um, and if you were attacking from the south, you would be sailing toward Oahu to launch because the wind was coming from that direction. But then you would have to keep sailing towards Hawaii, <laughs> uh, towards Oahu, to recover them uh, because that's where the wind was coming from. Whereas on the other side of the island, it's the reverse. Um, You would turn into the wind away from the island to launch your planes, which would then peel around and head the other direction. But you would be able to keep sailing away from the island to recover them. You would be already on your way to making your escape. Um, And that's what the Japanese did. Uh, They came from the north. Um, They launched about 230 miles north of the island. Um, and, uh, of course, they made their escape. They were not, even after the surprise was no longer a surprise, they weren't found. And it's important to note that this wasn't something the Japanese realized and only the Japanese realized. Any American who understood aviation in a little basic, basic sense would get that this direction was really the only direction. They all knew it. Uh, Kimmel knew it. Um, And so, yes, it's true that he didn't have enough PBYs to search in all directions around his island. And that is, in fact, because we had given many, many of our airplanes to the British uh, to help them survive. But uh, this, uh, I think it can be said that he had enough planes to search the most dangerous sector and yet still have some planes in reserve if uh, he needed to um, sail off with the fleet to fight the Japanese. He always needed search planes flying out ahead of his ships. Uh, He was really concerned about that. He wanted to preserve his planes for his offensive missions. It's always the saving things back for the offense. Yes. Um, Rather than um, using them up, uh, I I probably should note that flying a search is a very arduous exercise for both the machine and and the crew. The PBY had a range of about 1,200 miles. I think it had a crew of seven to nine. And you, in order to safely find out um, if someone was out there, you'd go out about seven or 800 miles, and there are technical reasons for that. Um, but the whole flight would take about 16 hours. You couldn't do that, get up at seven, go fly for 16 hours, right. come back, land, and then do it again the next day. 
you would use up machines and men right. pretty quickly. Kimmel didn't want to do that. He wanted to, like a squirrel, uh, save his, his nuts uh, for the winter, and the winter for him was the moment when he could go fight the Japanese. There's another interesting technological innovation that has been talked about, about when it regarded Pearl Harbor, and that's the advent of radar. Uh, people may not understand or they may have heard that there were radar teams at Pearl Harbor that they picked up the Japanese force way off with potentially enough time to alert or do something about it. But there's way more to the story than that. I mean, these are, these are crews that were there, but they weren't trained. They weren't even warned that there was a potential. I mean, that's the thing. The crew didn't even know the warning of an attack was no. coming. Uh, and, of course, these are Army crews. And their kids. Army crew kids. <laughs> and the people defending the island were the Navy. And there's no coordination, as we talked about before. Uh, this, this is mind-blowing. I mean, when I heard about this the first time, was, I just radar is so important for World War II. And, of course, it had already been proven to be an effective tool by the British. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like a completely unproven technology. The British had defeated the Germans during the <laughs> Battle of Britain using radar. And we have the opportunity here to weigh out stop at least learn of the Japanese advance at least to get some planes up in the air at least to do something about it and we dropped the ball completely on this um, yes the um, uh, radar Sorry, all I gave you a chance to go is say is yes no. I basically wax philosophic about no, you're, my, I, I, uh, being you're pissed off about radar you're entirely uh, correct um, in a nutshell the Navy was more uh, advanced when it came to using radar it had ships that were already equipped with it but radar on a ship parked in a harbor isn't much use. It wasn't at Pearl because the mountains get yeah. in the way. The Army on Oahu, uh, on, uh, Oahu had, uh, was uh, trying, was in the early stages of adopting radar. And on that morning, it had six mobile units out deployed uh, around the island. What's a mobile unit? Well, it's essentially a truck, a big, huge antenna. It looks like a, a TV antenna on steroids. Um, and you, you have a, um, uh, a couple of off guys who would be camping in a tent next to this truck with an oscilloscope, and they were sent out there um, after Washington warned the Army uh, that war was coming, but they weren't sent out there uh, because anybody thought an attack was coming. Right. They were sent out there for practice. They thought, well, okay, we're going to guard... Um, against sabotage, but since everybody else in the Army is on alert as a result of this warning, uh, we're going to have our radar guys get some extra practice. So they were told, um, this one particular crew was told to go out there and start operating the unit at 4 in the morning. Why then? Well, if an attack ever did come, it would be at dawn. That's a pretty logical time because you use the cover of night to approach. Right. But these two uh, young men at this uh, site called Opana at the far northern side of um, Oahu, there's a famous big resort there now called Turtle Bay. Uh, these two young men, one was named uh, Joe Lockhart and the other was George Elliott, they had had absolutely no indication that the times were tense, that things were fraying, that any alerts had been given. They had been said, told to go out there and run your unit from 4 until 7 a.m. 
they didn't know why. No one had told them. They didn't even know about potential attack on the Philippines or anywhere. They, 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 they any nothing. Japanese-American diplomatic troubles. They were completely in the dark. Completely in the dark. And it was because, in effect, Walter Short had not taken the warning as anything particularly alarming. And these guys had finished their shift that morning at 7 a.m., and they were waiting for the truck to come by and pick them up, take them to the, to the mess hall for breakfast. One of the two was more inexperienced than the other, and he said, well, I want to still practice on the machine, even though we're off the clock. And he sat down, and at 7.02 a.m., um, he picked up on the oscilloscope what he later de- described as the largest group of airplanes he had ever seen. Now, he didn't have a whole lot of experience, right. so his timeline wasn't great. Um, radar at that time could not tell you um, who it was out there. We didn't have transponders then that would identify you as friend or foe. Um, Nor was it particularly accurate in terms of a count of how many returns you were getting. They estimated 50, maybe, or more. Uh, They had never seen anything like it. Um, They did know that uh, this group of planes was inbound and coming probably at a two to three miles a minute clip. They didn't know what to do. No one had told them that right. this was a dangerous time. One of them said, you know, we're off the clock. It took a little bit of lobbying by George Eliot for them to call the operations center, not because they thought these were anything but Navy planes. That's what they thought they were. But because it's just so weird. And that telephone call, if it had been dealt with properly, uh, might have given the fleet uh, about a 50-minute warning. Um, and 50 minutes would not have been enough time to get the fleet out of Pearl Harbor. It takes, uh, took like three hours to get all the ships out. But they would have been fully uh, alert at that time, all the guns manned. The most damage was caused by 40 Japanese torpedo planes, and they came in first. Right. So if the ships had been ready... Uh, there's a high probability more of those torpedo planes would have been shot down. Well, you could have sent out the Army fighters. Or you could have launched the Army fighters. And even caught them, taken out some of them before they even got to the ground. That's exactly right. Um, And I should say, the reason the call wasn't taken seriously um, was not the fault of the man who took the call. His name was Kermit Tyler. He was an Army fighter pilot who, just like the two radar operators, had been told to go to this operations center for a night of training in how to be an operations officer. He didn't know how radar worked. No one had told him anything was dangerous. He was a fighter pilot. And then there was a flight of B-17s coming in that morning. And he knew that. Yeah. Um, So uh, those three young men, they were all young, um, certainly were at a pivot point of history, but I don't think they did anything wrong. Yeah. It was far above their pay grade. Well, let let me wrap this up by talking about one more mistake above the person's pay grade, and that's the ward. Uh, Destroyer, uh, people know this story. Perhaps they don't know the name of the ship, but a a Japanese mini-sub was sunk uh, right before the invasion for the inv- uh, the attack force showed up, uh, this is not something that happens just on a random day. And I think people understood the repercussions. It's very interesting they did nothing about it. You know, one of the um, we haven't discussed this, but back in March of 1941, excuse me, uh, uh, an army general and a navy admiral had done a report that 
almost exactly forecast what would ha- what subsequently happened. Um, and one of the aspects of their report, I think I have this right, I, I may be misremembering, but it was thought that any large attack on the island would be preceded by uh, submarine action. Um, and here is the ward, a destroyer, very old one, on a routine patrol overnight uh, off the entrance to the harbor. And I think the best part of this story is, is the man who was in charge of the ward. His name was William Outerbridge. And William Outerbridge had never commanded a ship until the day before <laughs> when um, his request for transfer and promotion in his own ship came through. His replacement was assigned. He moved from one destroyer to the command of his first destroyer ever. And he had sailed out of Pearl Harbor with the ward on Saturday morning. And so we are uh, less than 24 hours into his first day of his first command. He's asleep behind uh, the bridge in a quarters set aside for the captain when someone yells, you know, captain to the bridge, which he knew was, you don't say that unless something is horribly wrong. And he spots, along with his crew, an object in the water. um, And it's um, a shape uh, unlike any American submarine. And here you have this young man. Actually, he was older. uh, I think he was 41. Um, He knew instantly what to do. He may have been absolutely new to the job, and he may have known that you know, this was going to be the end of peace with Japan because it had to be a Japanese submarine. But he told his ship, let's go get them. And they uh, immediately went to a head full and open fire and sank the ship. And he radioed Pearl um, that he had fired upon a submarine. Now, that's a key phrase because there were always vague contacts and report, vague reports right. of submarine contacts, and it was usually overexcited destroyer crews or bad sonar. In this case, Outerbridge was saying, "No, no, no, this isn't a vague contact. I shot at something." Well, and there's there's engaged, there's you know prosecuted. This is fired upon number one, or submerged contact or unknown. No submarine, and you know people don't realize. Again, you're right about this. People don't realize that. If you're that specific, it matters. It mattered. Yeah. In fact, he sent two messages, and his first one he thought could be misinterpreted for that reason. So he sent another and used in the second one the expression fired upon. Well, that message slowly worked its way up various chains of command, and it got to Kimmel shortly before 8 a.m., And there had been so many false contacts that he thought uh, this needed to be checked out. He didn't issue any orders, but he said he would go to to fleet headquarters. He was at home. Um, And it's strange because, you know, I think for most of us, today is most, tomorrow is most likely going to be a carbon copy of today. We don't think tomorrow is going to change our lives. And even though they'd had all these warnings and reports and prognostications, I think Kimmel and everyone else was still in this grip of peace that this isn't the moment. It can't be the moment. And so he didn't order any alarms sounded um, in response to this report. And then a few minutes later, his uh, duty officer called back and said, um, there's an air raid on the, on the base. And he went out on his lawn 
his house sat, uh, and it still sits, it's still the residence of the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, it sat on, a, on the edge of a very small extinct volcano that overlooks Pearl, and he stood there watching um, this unbelievable sight of um, his ships being attacked. And a neighbor came out from um, the wife of one of his officers, and she stood with him. And he knew immediately that this was uh, unfolding catastrophe, mm -hmm. that every assumption he had made about Japanese military capability, about military logic and military strategy, was all being blown up before his eyes. I, I think it's one of the saddest scenes in American history because he knew his career was over. And the neighbor said that Kimmel was standing there, um, his face as white as the uniform he wore. Hmm. Um, and um, uh, he, uh, his driver pulled up in a car. No one had summoned the driver. He just knew to come. And they raced off to fleet headquarters. And I think it was during that short drive, it's about five minutes, that he may have at least heard, if he didn't see, the most devastating moment of the attack, which was uh, not long after 8 a.m., a, not a torpedo, a bomb fell into the forward magazine of the Arizona, and the ship simply disappeared yeah. in this gigantic explosion. And that's where most of the Americans who died that day uh, died. And I think we have to be careful. I mean, we've been having a fun conversation here. have to be careful to not apply historic hindsight to everything we've been talking about today. And I think that's something I've always tried to teach students about. It's very easy for us to second guess all this, just like it was easy after 9-11 and easy going all the way back to the failures in intelligence, you know, whether it's a war of 1812 and oh, God only knows. <laughs> Historians and, and people who have 75 years to look back, uh, it's very easy for us to say shame on you for not seeing X or shame on you for not doing this or that. But you're right. You said it exactly. The idea of this is just another day. And if Pearl Har the attack on Pearl Harbor hadn't happened, December 7th, 1941 may have been remembered for the day uh, a football team yeah. won and not the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, and, and so uh, and I think you do a pretty good again, when I said at the very beginning, humanizing Kimmel more than I'd ever really thought of him before. He was always a very convenient boogeyman, a very convenient bad guy. Uh, and I'm, I've had to rethink a little bit about that today. Um, so we'd like to thank Movement Watches and Mac Weldon for the continued support of this SpyCast. And remember, you can get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. And you can get 20% off at macweldon.com by using the promo code spycast. 20% off at macweldon.com by using the promo code spycast. Perhaps more importantly... Get Yourself Countdown to Pearl Harbor, The 12 Days to the Attack. This is the new book by Steve Toomey. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and he writes like it. I can, I can assure you that. Thank you. Uh, this is not a fuddy-duddy, uh, stuffy history book. Um, not that that's anything wrong with that. Those are wonderful. <laughs> but this is certainly written for uh, both the lay historian and the wonk alike. Um, and again, I can I can say I've read a ton of books on Pearl Harbor, but this had me going, oh, okay, that's interesting, several times. And to me, that's magic. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time, Steve. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. 
Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.